0: This is a significant chapter for anyone who has ever done something foolish. Roadblocks to foolishness, that's what I'm calling it. You'll see why in just a moment. If you'll, again, turn to 1 Samuel 25, picking up in verse 1. And Spirit of the living God, again, we just ask for you to teach us. We trust you, and we trust your word, and we just want to hear. Hear your word right And then, Lord, we we seek to have it applied uh, personally to each one of us. This is a work that you can do. It's not something I can do. And so we rely on you and ask you, Holy Spirit, to teach us in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So uh, chapter 25, verse 1, Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah, And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. He was the last of the team, or that Hebrew word for judges, what we call the book, or guardians, as we called it when we studied through. Uh, Samuel's the last one. He's the crossover. He's the most famous prophet to follow Moses, and he's the one who helped the people of Israel from the theocracy to the monarchy. He is the anointer of kings. Having anointed Saul, And then having anointed David, and to this day, Samuel remains among the most holy men of God in history. As we read his story and how he handled things and we see his heart for God's people and for God's kings, it's pretty remarkable, and this is a man, I wanna meet him, I wanna get to know him because there are very few people in the Bible that don't pull some dumb stunt at some point. Well, Samuel is one of the few. Uh, Psalm 99, verse six. We read a couple of verses here. I'll repeat to you early on. Moses and Aaron were among God's priests and Samuel was among those who call on his name. They called upon the Lord and he answered them. So there he is among Moses and Aaron. Jeremiah 15, verse 1, as the Lord is speaking in judgment of Israel, yet he says this of Samuel, even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. This is an amazing prophet. An amazing man who stood for the Lord, made his circuit for the Lord in Israel, whose heart broke, as I said, for the people. And this oft rebellious people here in verse one now, all gathered together. It says all Israel gathered together. Isn't that ironic? Because this is the man, as they gather to honor and bury him, this is the man that they themselves had rejected. If you look back just for a moment at chapter eight, 1 Samuel chapter eight in verse four, it says, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And we went over this back as this transition began to take place and now Samuel sees it through, but these are the people who didn't want him anymore and now they gather to honor him. And now they gather you know, to bury him and mourn for him. And we, we talked a little bit about how I can relate. Perhaps you can relate to Samuel in a moral climate of rebellion where you start to feel like maybe you're the only one who even cares about what's right and wrong anymore. You're the only one or maybe part of just a tiny little handful of sidelined people who care for truth and righteousness and holiness and the things of God. And when you are in a, a moral climate that is so characterized by willful rebellion, it's very easy to feel like you are on the outside, like you're a reject of society. So let me just remind you that John chapter 1, verse 10 tells us that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. And he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Then if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you, and yet, Jesus did this. John 1, verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And so, if you feel on the outs, as Samuel did at one point, if you feel like you just don't click in this world, in this culture, in this society anymore, that's all right, child of God, understand that Jesus has called you out of the world. And they hated him before they hated you. Now, in this funeral, at this funeral in chapter 25, uh, we notice two men appear to be absent. The first absentee is Saul. There is no mention here of Saul actually showing up for Samuel's funeral. Now, now he may have, uh, you know, we'll, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt, but the Bible does not tell us he's there, and it's odd that, that, that he's not mentioned at all. If he's the king of Israel, isn't it strange that he's not mentioned as being at the funeral and burial of this famed prophet? No word. Saul seems to be MIA, And if we go back to 1 Samuel 15, verse 35, it tells us that Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul. The word until, Samuel did not see Saul until the day of his death doesn't mean that Samuel saw him on the day of his death. What it means, the word until is as far as. In other words, he didn't see Saul again. From the point of the rejection of Saul in chapter 15 all the way to chapter 25, in this span of time, Samuel and Saul no longer broke bread together, no longer saw each other, all the way to Samuel's death. Why? Because Samuel would spend the rest of his days grieving over Saul. Did Saul ever grieve over Samuel? We don't know. But the second absentee, I believe, did, and that's David. At the end of verse one, again, it says David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. If if you know your Bible map, and most of us probably don't know where the wilderness of Paran is, think of the Sinai Peninsula. David, at this time, as Samuel dies, rather than going up to the funeral at Ramah, he heads south not just to the Negev, not just to the border of Kadesh Barnea, but past that, he continues all the way down into the wilderness of Paran of the Northern Sinai Peninsula. He is out of the country at the death of Samuel, why? Some of you were alive at the time, saw the headlines, read about it, were aware of it. December 8th, 1980, John Lennon was shot and killed under the archway of the Dakota building in New York City. And that morning in the UK, the press finally caught up with Paul McCartney. He was getting into a car outside of his home, and he was asked if he had heard about the death of John Lennon. And his reply, and you can look this up, you can watch it, it's interesting, it was a dull, yeah, drag, isn't it? And he was excoriated for that response. People were so angry, Beatles fans, you know, Lennon fans were like, he didn't care about him at all. It was only later that we learned that Paul McCartney was actually heartbroken that the reason he was getting in his car was to drive to the studio because he couldn't stand to stay home all day alone. And he went to the studio, and met up with George Martin, and they listened to old Beatles demos all day long. Because he mourned for his friend, but he didn't want to mourn for his friend in public, you know? some things are just too private. David could not risk showing his face at Ramah. And so what does he do? He heads to the deep south. He goes to the wilderness of Paran to grieve. To grieve Samuel. Psalm 119.28 says, My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. If you grieve, if you are grieving, one of the best places you can go is to the word of God. That's where the strength is. Chapter 25 begins with this single sad verse of of grief and personal sorrow, but I am reminded even as I read it that God gets grief, that God understands our sorrow. Psalm 56, verse eight, you have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Or Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus knew, Jesus felt, Jesus experienced grief. Even with that profound two-word verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty-five, 35, Jesus wept. And we've gone there and talked about that part of the reason that this happened, that this is highlighted for us in the scriptures, is that we would know that Jesus knows what, it, what it's like to lose. And to grieve and to hurt and to mourn, he gets that. He grieved deeply, and so he understands our most personal times of grief and loss. And again, I think that's why David heads south to the wilderness. And in verse two, it tells us, now there was a man in Ma'on whose business was in Carmel. Don't think Mount Carmel. We've mentioned this recently. Carmel, this Carmel is about eight miles south of Hebron. So down toward the Negev of Israel. And this man was very rich, verse two continues, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He's not doing bad. (laughs) And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now we have an interlude. Now, Now the man's name was Nabal. And his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a calabite. It came about that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Verse three, what a stunning statement. What a contrast between a man and his wife, a husband and his wife. That you have this husband, he's rich, he's well off, and he is Nabal, which means, write it down in your Bibles, fool. The man is a fool. His name means fool. Did mom know when she named him? Did dad understand? Was this baby born with cross eyes and a stupid look on his face? I mean, why would you, why would you name your child fool? We were talking about this earlier today. I, I think it's because they didn't realize what the name meant. A lot of times we'll do that. You know, people will name their child. I mean, don't raise your hand, but think about this. How many of us, you know, at some point thought, I wonder what my name means? And you went to look it up and you're like, what? Who came up with that? So we got Nabal. His name means fool, but I'll tell you what, man lives up to his name. And then there's Abigail, his wife, who is described here as intelligent and beautiful. What a contrast. Abigail. Her name means joy of the Father. Joy of the Father. Daddy's little girl, you could think. And we could call these two together Beauty and the Bonehead, because really, that's what they are. Contrasted together, and how this, this foolish, cruel villain ended up with such a lev- lovely wife. Guys, can we be honest? Most of us married up. <laughs> Just the way it is, it takes years to figure out. A lot of us entered marriage. I know I did, thinking she is so lucky to have me. <laughs> How blessed is this woman who to find me. What a Nabal. <laughs> so here's this man, and it's really interesting because this will play out in the story before us. What a fool. What a complete idiot. What a moron. What a tarara gundier, Bugs Bunny would say. He really is. This guy's just the worst. And you notice that wealth, status, success, and intellect, even marriage to a beautiful, intelligent woman does not prove wisdom. This guy, for all of his so-called success in the world, is yet a fool. Psalm 49, verse 10 says, The stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is their houses are forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names, but man in pomp will not endure. He's like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. And isn't that true in our world and our society? People look and they say, riches, wealth, success, All of these things, these physical, tangible things, boy, this guy must have it all together. No, this guy's a complete idiot. And oftentimes that's the case, but you wanna know the number one trait, the most telling characteristic of a fool. I'll give it to you right here. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. It is the most foolish trait to hear and yet deny the words of Jesus. That, my friends, is a fool because their house will fall and great will be its fall and, my friends, mortality is mankind's great fall. We're all gonna die, the mortal life, unless we be raptured, but the only way someone's gonna be raptured is by keeping these words of Jesus, by loving the Lord, by putting faith in him. Without that, mortality is it. It is the great fall, and without Jesus, no house will stand. So here's the fool and his beautiful yet intelligent wife, and we still have to try and figure out why she ended up married to him. I'm thinking arranged marriage. She didn't have any say in it because I don't think she would have chosen this complete idiot. Verse five. So David sent 10 young men and David said to the young man, go up to Carmel, visit Nabal and greet him in my name and thus you shall say, have a long life, peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I really like this greeting. Peace. Peace. Peace be to you, peace be to your house, peace be to all you have. That reveals a spiritual heart, someone who's seeking peace for another. Now, granted, this was probably a, a greeting, a kind, generous Middle Eastern greeting, but I like the greeting, peace. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Romans twelve eighteen we saw a Sunday. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace, exactly, be at peace with all men. He's saying, I'm not going to have peace if you take me away from mom. That's just the deal. Be at peace with all men. Are you looking for peace? Are you offering peace? Are you a peacemaker? That is to be like a son of God, one who offers peace. Well, verse 7 Now I heard that you have shearers and your shepherds have been with us and we have not insulted them nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. Verse nine, when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name and then... They waited, so David sends them up to Carmel, to Nabal. It is a festive day. This is sheep shearing time. David knows this. Sheep shearing time is harvest time for the rancher. This is is a time of celebration, and the way they did this was they would shear all the sheep, and once all the wool was off and collected, it was a feast. It was celebration. I like this about the Israelites. They, They had a feast for everything. And they knew how to celebrate. And when the job was done, the celebration began. And they're all gathered there. And it is this festive day, a time of, you might say, sheer celebration. And it was customary hospitality to share such celebrating with others, especially with those who were like-minded, other ranchers around. Hey, come celebrate with us. We're sharing the sheep today. Those who were involved with maybe offering some protection, as we will come to see, that David's men did. All the time that they were shepherding their sheep, Nabal's men were shepherding all of these sheep and goats in Carmel, David's men were around providing protection. Maybe not looking after the sheep, but making sure that none of the sheep were bothered, that none of the the shepherds were hassled. And so... David sends his men up to Nabal. They may be running short on provisions. They've been down in the wilderness, right? So he says, go up and and talk to Nabal and give him peace and just say, hey, can we join in the celebration with you? Do you have something on hand that we can celebrate and we can enjoy some food with you? Verse 10, but Nabal answered David. He answered his servants and said, who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? Whoa, whoa now. How did he know that David was the son of Jesse if he didn't know who David was? He knows exactly who David is, and what he's saying is very offhanded. Who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. What? Okay, that's a slight. There are many servants breaking away like David broke away from Saul. Saul. Verse 11, shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men whose origin I don't know or whose origin I refuse to recognize? So David's young men retraced their way and went back and they came and told him according to all these words. Some suggest what's going on here is that Nabal is a partisan. He is aware of King Saul's anti-David party, and he has chosen to vote as a solocrat. Just saying. This is my choice. I am with the king. You broke away from him. Why should I give you anything? And some suggest that, and I think it's likely because we're about to realize also this is a house divided between... Nabal and Abigail. They have different political persuasions, which is somewhat obvious, but on top of it all, Nabal is a greedy doofus. That's what's really driving this whole thing. Verse 13, so David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. Three times the word sword is used there. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. David offers peace, and his peace is snubbed, and so he straps on a sword. And I would say to you, that's actually a good idea. When your peace gets snubbed, gird on your sword. Not to fight. (laughs) Aw. Gird on the word the sword of the word, the word of peace. Isaiah 52, verse seven says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. And again, three times the word sword is used here in verse 13, But in this case, David is not being compared to the scriptures, David is girding up, ready to fight, he's angered. he is offended, and he's ready to punish, and he's bearing the wrong sword. And David right now is on the verge of tremendous foolishness. Verse 14, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet, the word greet there is literally to bless our master, and he, that is Nabal, scorned him. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the time we were with them tending the sheep. So now we have a firsthand account. This servant of Nabal says, David's men covered us, protected us, took care of us, and now they're just asking to be part of the celebration. He says, now therefore, verse 17, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, (laughs) and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. You know what? It is known all throughout Nabal's house and Carmel and the region that this guy's a fool. It is known to his servants that they cannot talk to him because he will go off. And obviously it's known to his wife where the servant wouldn't speak so openly to her about it as well. He calls him a worthless man. This whole thing tells us so much about Nabal's character that he scorned. David's men, that word scorned used down in verse 14 is ya'at, it means to dart or to fly at angrily to rail upon it's used only three times in the Hebrew scriptures the word translated scorned the first time it's used is 1 Samuel 14 verse 32, you may remember this, the people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground and the people ate with the blood, remember that? And then it's repeated, 1 Samuel 15, 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Rushed upon, to attack, to go at. So when it says that, when the servant says Nabal scorned them, he didn't just go, come on. It means he attacked them. It means he verbally rebuked them. It means he angrily got all on their case. This is uncontrolled carnality, that's what the word describes. And one of his own servants here also now calls him a worthless man, you've seen the phrase before, Ben Belial, a son of Belial, son of the devil. Second Corinthians 6.15, remember Paul said, what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And this old Hebrew phrase, a son of Belial, a worthless man we have in our translation, but this, is, this guy's a son of the devil. You can't talk to him. You know, it can really be hard to maintain peace with a callous clod, but be careful making that assumption. In the story, Nabal is clearly a fool. There's no question about it, but he is not the one with the problem. He's just the devil in the details. (laughs) The one with the problem is David. The one that is about to play the fool is David himself. But eyes on Abigail, verse 18. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and 200 jugs of wine. By the way, with the loaves of bread, I can guarantee it wasn't like the little flat, smushy end pieces. Sorry, I'm still working through that. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. Why does she have all this stuff? It's a festive time. The celebration's already underway. All the meal, all the food has been prepared. There is more than enough. Abigail recognizes this. It's not an issue that there isn't enough food for them to share. There's plenty, The issue is that Nabal's being a fool. So Abigail gathers it all together. Verse 19, she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Why? Because he's an idiot. Verse 20. I was really looking forward tonight to being being able to say idiot, stupid, fool, all those words as many times as possible. Because I've been told before that those aren't words that Jesus would say when I've used them in teaching. Well, It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down toward her and so she met them. Now David had said, and note this, we're getting more information. It says David had said, So jump back to verse 13 when he said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. This is the rest of what David had said. Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. David is ticked. David is now flying off the handle. But listen to the grace of this beautiful, intelligent wife of a fool. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. (laughs) wow, on me alone be the blame. She didn't even know about this. She knew nothing about this, this interchange between Nabal and the men of David. She was completely unaware till the servant came and told her. And yet now she rushes to, I wonder, honestly, I wonder how many times she protected her husband like this. How many times before Abigail had to run to his defense, say, it's, it's on me, it's on it's my it's, it's, don't, he's, you know, we all know. Just it's I'll take it. It's remarkable to me, and you might want to jot this down. I'll give you four more things about the spiritual person tonight, because in this chapter, Abigail is the spiritual woman. As much as David, we looked at Sunday, is the spiritual man of chapter 24, Abigail is the spiritual woman. Of chapter 25, Abigail could be could be put in the likes of uh, of the company of Sarah or Deborah or any of the great women of Israel or great women of the New Testament who are great examples, sisters of spiritual women. But I want to term this as the spiritual person, because male or female, this absolutely works. Number one, the spiritual person can receive the blame. It is Spiritual to take the blame even when you're blameless. It is a spiritual act when you are innocent of it all to take the downside. Abigail is obviously innocent, but she takes the responsibility. She takes it on herself. She humbles herself, even offering apology for a wrong that she did not commit. And it is one of the best ways to defuse an incendiary situation. Take the downside. It always works when you say, you know what, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I've told this story before, but I got a minute, so I'll tell you. Many of you haven't heard it. I was in, living in Fairfax, Virginia, Cheryl and I, and I had zero uh, decent clothes to wear on a Sunday morning because in Fairfax, Virginia, even the youth pastor has to dress up. So I was the youth pastor at the time, and I had to get some nice button-down shirts to go with, you know, ties and all that stuff. And I'm in this store in, in the mall. What was the name of the store? Do you remember? Oh, man, I'm going to remember it's because it's funny. Cuffs. Cuffs. C-U-F-F-S. Cuffs. Cuffs. So I go into Cuffs to buy a shirt, a nice button-down shirt, and I bought a couple of shirts, and I took them home, and I, and I tried them on, and they didn't fit at all. So I carefully folded them back up, put them in the package, went back to the store, and went to, up to the counter and said, hey, these don't fit me. And, and the salesperson said, so. Now, remember, this, this wasn't 2023. This was back in the 90s. People were still nice. And he said, <laughs> he goes, so? And I go, well, so I'd like to return them. Well, I'm not taking them back. What do you mean you're not taking them back? You, you've got a return policy. Well, I'm not taking them back. And, and, and he slid them back across the table at me. Now, granted, I hadn't had the best day, but I slid them right back across the table to him. I said, you are going to take those back. I'm returning them. And he goes, no, I'm not. He slid them across me. And the sliding got more and more vicious every time until the shirt's like, you know, throwing shirts. And, and, and all of a sudden, now this guy's going off. And, and cuffs, you could change the name because it's what he started to do, to cuss. He's cussing me out in the store. The t- and he's coming around the edge of this counter. And this guy is ready to throw down over two Shirts, all I can say is the spirit of God came upon me in that moment <laughs> because I realized we're about to have a fight right here in a store in the mall. And, and I just went, I said, are you having a bad day? Because I'm kind of having a bad day. I'm really sorry. And everything was over. I mean, the wind went out of the sails. He cussed a few more times, but it was more under his breath. Well, did. And I'm like, thanks a lot, Nabal. I didn't say it out loud. <laughs> but it diffused because I apologized. And then, if you want to know the end of the story, another salesman came out later and says, I'll return the shirts. Because I'm sorry, uh, that guy's not going to last here. And I'm like, yeah, me either, I'm not coming back. So <laughs> that's kind of it. But, but the idea, again, and this wasn't, this wasn't a bright and shining moment for Pastor Nabal, P- Pastor Rick, this was <laughs> foolish. But but the example again, the spiritual person can receive the blame. Why? Because you're blameless. See, you can receive the blame when you're blameless because you know you are. And and, and also, you know what else? You can receive the blame because you know you deserve it at some point. There's plenty of blame that has been received for you. Proverbs 15.1 says a gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. And haven't you already been forgiven of all sin? Think of all the blame we should bear that we don't. Think about what Jesus bore, all the blame that Jesus bore on the cross, the innocent for the guilty, the blameless for the condemned, and do we want to be Christ-like or don't we? So the spiritual person, it is a spiritual act to receive the blame in humility, because all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him, Isaiah 53, 6. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So the fact that we are made blameless in Christ Jesus, we can take the blame if that's what it takes to diffuse the anger, to humble ourselves and to take the downside in any given situation and go, I'm really sorry. Whether it was my fault or not is irrelevant. Tending to the person's heart who is stirred up and angry is what matters. So Abigail takes the foolish contempt of Nabal on herself, it's my fault. Verse 25, she says, please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Ben Belial. So now she quotes her own servant. Don't pay attention to this son of the devil, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. (laughs) She kind of throws him under the bus, but rightly so. Nabal is his name, and Folly is with him, but I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So this really is my fault. If I had known, uh, this wouldn't have happened. Verse 26, now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Let anyone who comes against you be fools. She says, now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. she's talking about the loaves of bread and the jugs of wine and the sheep and the measures of grain and clusters of raisins, all the good stuff that she brought. Here's the gift. Let it be given to your men. Verse 28. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. Watch this. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil will not be found in all your days. Evil will not be found in all your days. All of a sudden, this dear, intelligent, beautiful woman stands before David and begins to speak prophetically. What do you mean? She says, the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Second Samuel chapter seven, the Lord is going to say to David, "You're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you." And it's an enduring house, and it is a house through which Messiah will come. This is beautiful, while her stupid husband is Team Saul. Clearly, Abigail is Team David. There's more proof of this to come. She knows about David. She knows that he has fought for the people. My Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. I know you're fighting the battles of Yahweh. She's aware, like all Israel, that David has fought against the Philistines, that David has done good for the people, and that he is a righteous man, and so she's she's on team David. And more than Jonathan or Saul, she now encourages David with the promise of an enduring house. Again, that's the house, the house of David, through which Messiah will come. This borders on the Christological. She is speaking something prophetic. Side note, to consider future things as foretold by prophets and apostles and as revealed by the Lord Jesus himself is not foolish. Ignoring them is foolish. So when Jesus says, he who does not, who hears my words but doesn't keep them, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Many of the words of Christ that are given to us are words of what is coming words of the future, words of prophecy, and they're given to us to pay attention to. As Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2, remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know first of all, Peter says, that in the last days, and he continues on from there. In other words, Peter is saying, the prophetic word is a lamp to our feet. The prophetic word is significant. We have the prophetic word more sure. To which you would do well to pay attention as to a a lamp shining in a dark place, Peter says in another place. The book of Revelation begins, chapter one, verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Why do we have the book of Revelation? To ignore it because it's hard to understand. What? The book opens with the reason that we would know what's coming, that we would consider future things. And Abigail is doing this, even with David right here. Forgive my transgression, for Yahweh will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. And so, my friends, the spiritual person recognizes the future. The spiritual person looks to the future. It is spiritual to do so. Sure, you can receive the blame, but you also recognize the future and the significance thereof. Why? Because few things are more encouraging to Jesus' people living in the here and now than considering Jesus coming then. I mean, isn't that true for you? And if it's not, would you please talk to me? I've actually had the conversation with people who have said, no, it throws me off my game. I'm not thinking about what's coming. I find incredible encouragement. I find the 1 Thessalonians 4 principle, therefore, comfort one another with these words. What words? the rapture of the church. Therefore, encourage each other with prophecy. It encourages me so much to think about the kingdom. Every time this life goes dark, every time I find it difficult here, I think about, you know what, we're just in the training ground. This is not the deal, the kingdom is the deal. The kingdom is what it's about. We're gonna serve and work and flourish with Jesus for a thousand years? What's what's the length of your working life here and now? 30, 40? Really? Well, I was 40 years at such and such company. Well, bully for you, you got a thousand year reign ahead of you. And that's just the kingdom. We haven't even gotten to Revelation 21 and 22 yet. This is supposed to encourage God's people and the spiritual person recognizes the future, considers the future, receives the blame, recognizes the future. Verse 29, she continues, she says, should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. That is such a cool phrase. To be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God your God, who, by the way, is the God of the living. We're bound up in that bundle of life, she says. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. What's she referring to? David David and Goliath. She is very aware of David's exploits. You're bound in the bundle of the living. That is those who live in the will of Yahweh. But the spiritual person also recalls the victorious past. So we can receive blame if that will diffuse the situation, if that's what's necessary, if I need to humble myself to do so. Hey, I'm in Jesus who took all the blame, so I can take any blame you want to throw at me. But the spiritual person recognizes the future, the promise of what is to come, and the spiritual person recalls the victorious past. It's part of the encouragement of walking in the spirit. I know what God has done. I'm aware of the things, of the victories. And in her appeal to the sling, we realize she knows all about young David's victory over Goliath that happened years before. And she uses this, and remember, it says that she's beautiful and intelligent. She's also spiritual, so she's a triple threat gal. And she uses these these beautiful poetic languages referring to the future, now referring to the past, and it's all encouraging David, and you really get the sense that Abigail kept all the news clippings of David in the headlines on a thumb drive somewhere, like she's following the exploits. I really shouldn't say this, but I'm going to, that, that, that if, if, if Nabal is, is a solocrat, then Abigail would have to be a Davidicon I know, right? Let's just continue. Verse 30. (laughs) And when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, so word is out about the prophecy spoken over David, and he appoints you ruler over Israel because she assumes that he will be, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself when the Lord deals well with my Lord then remember your maidservant wow beautiful intelligent spiritual and she raises a profound spiritual necessity in the life of a believer and that is simply that avoiding grief later as a consequence of foolishness now that's the deal avoiding grief later as a consequence of foolishness now, that the, the spiritual man, the spiritual woman, pauses to recognize that if I do this now, this will bring grief later. It may, may feel great right now, throwing the shirts in that man's face. It may feel wonderful to act on my anger or to act in foolishness right now. It may be satisfying, but what's it gonna do later? How's it gonna affect me later? This is what she is, this, she is calling up it's a remarkable statement, Now I wanna stay with this thought pretty much for the rest of our time here, how she intervenes and stops David from what would cause foolish grief. Peter put it this way, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. If you're feeling good about that, the fourth one is, or a troublesome meddler. <laughs> But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. That's exactly what she's saying. If you do this now, if you murder Nabal, fool that he is, if you murder him and his men and his household, you're gonna suffer for it later, David. Don't do this. She stands in the place of a roadblock to foolishness. She stands before David to stop him from causing his own grief down the line. Remember, there are people sided up in Israel. There are the Saul people and there are the David people. The Saul people are standing with him. Hey, he took 3,000 chosen men down to get David at Engedi, right? There are plenty who are saying, Saul, Saul, he's our man. There are others who are saying, if he can't do it, great, and they're trusting in David. So you have a kingdom already somewhat divided between first and second king and the second king hasn't come to the throne, he won't because the spiritual David doesn't want to divide the kingdom. And yet if he does something as brutish as murder Nabal for a stupid, you know, firing off of his mouth and kills his household, what's that going to do to the reputation of David? What's that going to do to the integrity of a man that many in Israel do want to follow, at least at this point? But for Abigail's intervention, David was marching straight for a later grief. The spiritual person, number four, last one, the spiritual person rejoices in roadblocks. The spiritual person rejoices in roadblocks, which is exactly what Abigail is. She is a roadblock to David's foolishness. Verse 32. And then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me and blessed be your discernment (laughs) and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, Unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would have not been left to Nabal until morning light as much as one male. And so David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, go up to your house in peace. See, I've listened to you and granted your request. Literally, he says to her, I've listened to your voice and lifted up your face. Because as he's, responding to her, as he's answering her with understanding and comprehension of how her roadblock has kept him from a great evil, he looks at Abigail and obviously her face is lit up. Obviously her countenance is changed. So consider this with me. Think about this. Are you with me? We need roadblocks to foolishness. We all need roadblocks to foolishness. We need divine restraint against thoughtless carnality because as spiritual as you may be, you are also carnal. As spiritual as I may be, I can slip into the soul like that. We need roadblocks to foolishness. Divine restraint, see, Thoughtless carnality can collapse spiritual discernment. Just when we think we are at our most spiritual, we can immediately slip into carnality. We can do something of the flesh, something stupid, something foolish. We need the Spirit to intervene. We need the Spirit to rescue us from our own stupidity. Because there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death, right? Right? Proverbs 16, 25. So let me ask you this question. How many of you have looked back to a time when you might have done something really, really stupid had not God intervened? Maybe through a family member. Jake tells me it was his brother. Through a parent, through a friend, or through some situation, you are on your way to go destroy a relationship and the car breaks down. I mean, it it could be anything, but, but we're about ready to do something super stupid, and God stops us, and it's only later that we look back and go, wow, wow, what a Nabal, and my name is David. How foolish. I wonder if in the future, David would look back on this situation, this scene, this day, In fact, I wonder every time he saw Abigail after this, and he would see her again, I wonder if he thought, that was a close one. I really could have blown it there. The story of chapter 25 is told around a series of soliloquies. That's really the substance of the story. I mean, we get the story, but we really hear it through statements of David, and then of David's servants and then of Nabal and then of Nabal's servant and then of Abigail and David. These are all soliloquies that are spoken by people that put the story together before us and it's not just chronological, but it's thematic. So we move through this and I don't want you to understand that this story is best read juxtaposed with chapter 24. Chapter 24 comes before chapter 25. I don't know if you, if you caught that. But it's not just chronology, it's, it's the theme that in chapter 24, David restrains himself from killing Saul. David shows great spiritual restraint. The spirit man is at work in David, and David is able to restrain himself from taking matters into his own hands in the cave. But in chapter 25, David is going to take matters into his own hands. He is going to play the fool And the only restraint on David in chapter 25 is the Lord. He restrains himself, the spiritual man, in chapter 24. But in chapter 25, it takes the spiritual woman, Abigail, to restrain him. But understand this, listen to me, it's not Abigail who restrains him. It's the Lord. This is the divine restraint of Yahweh who sends Abigail as a roadblock to the foolishness of David. The story teaches us both of these back to back. We can be super spiritual people and still commit great acts of nabalness, of foolishness. And when we head in those directions, there are so many times, I think probably far more than we even know where God intercepted us, where God sent us in an opposite direction of our foolish choice and saved us from our own cluelessness as we're driving down the road to Stupidville. God steps in. My friends, the grace of God is not only to wash our sin after we've committed it, it's to detour us from sin before we've committed it. This is how great his grace is. That he can even head us off at the pass before we head into foolishness. And again, Abigail is not the interceptor. Yahweh is, according to both her and David. And note this five times in the chapter. In verse 26, look at it. Verse 26, now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord, as Yahweh lives, as your soul lives, since Yahweh has restrained you. It wasn't me, Abigail says, it was the Lord. This is the Lord's divine restraint. Down in verse 32, David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet meet me. This was the Lord's doing, he says in verse 32. In verse 33, blessed be your discernment and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. So he's been kept from this foolishness by a woman sent by the Lord. Verse 34, nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me, So again, it's the Lord's work. And finally, we'll see this down in verse 39 as well. In fact, verses 38 and 39, we're gonna see the Lord's intervention. Five times we see it mentioned that God intervened. God intervened, God intervened. He is clearly the one who has kept David from playing the angry fool in the flesh. It's the work of the Lord. And he does this. Again, he he doesn't just keep us from temptation or from the enemy he keeps us sometimes from ourselves from our own foolishness from our own folly psalm 69 verse 5 oh god it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you you know what we try so hard to be cool and we are so foolish and the Lord actually, prote- he didn't protect me my freshman year of high school. One week in, at the end of a very hot September day in Southern California, I'm on my 10-speed bicycle. And some of you have heard this story too, but I, I, it, it, this is the Nabal, freshman Nabal Crawford. And I'm on my 10-speed and I'm heading through the parking lot of Mission Viejo High School and I've got, I've got too much to carry. I mean, what am I gonna do? I've got a drumstick bag. I've got a backpack, and I've got my heavy coat because, you know, in California, early September, who knows, it could get down into the 80s. (laughs) So I've got all of this with me, and I'm trying to figure out how to get it home, and so I put on the backpack, and I put on my heavy coat over that, so now I look like the hunchback of Notre Dame, and I take my drumstick case, and I hang it from the handlebars of my 10-speed so that it's taken care of, and I begin riding through the parking lot. And just to my left, all the varsity cheerleaders are about to get on the bus to go to the football game. And as I ride, I'm looking at them. I wasn't married at the time. And I'm looking at them, you know, playing it cool. They don't know what I know. They don't know that I'm a fool. Well, they probably had some hints as they see this freshman riding like a hunchback. And I am not aware that my drumstick bag is swinging back and forth until it swings into the front spokes of my bike. And I'm going just fast enough that the front wheel stops and the entire, here's the back wheel, front wheel, the bike does one of these. And next thing I know, I am on my back with my bike on top of me as the wheels are spinning and I fall over and I prayed, oh God, blind the cheerleaders. (laughs) I thought I was so cool. And I was such a fool. And spiritually, man, how many times has that happened to you when you were in a place trying to be godly and righteous and you thought you had your act together and then you do something so stupid? And God is such a gracious God that he forgives those foolish actions. He knows our folly. He also stops us from our folly ahead of time. And that's something that maybe you haven't considered or, or we don't think about a lot, how God works ahead of us to keep us from being dumb. Psalm 69, verse six, he says, may those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. That's a good prayer. Lord, you know my folly. You know my propensity to foolish things. Please, Lord, Don't let me get in the way of the faith of somebody else. Don't let me act like an idiot. In fact, what did Jesus say? He said, live your life in such a way that men may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And God does this by blocking our foolishness. By the way, there's another player in this story, one who the Lord used even before Abigail as a roadblock to David's foolishness. It's the unnamed young man, the servant. Nabal's servant who goes to Abigail and says, look, this is what's up, and we are in serious danger here. I gotta let you know, I can't tell the master, so I'm gonna tell you, this unnamed servant. And I read that, and I thought, you know, I'd love to make the application that that's the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is above all this. The Holy Spirit is the one sending the roadblocks. The roadblock here would be another believer. Maybe the roadblock is you. I mean, have you thought about that, that perhaps the Lord might use you as a roadblock to the foolishness of a brother or sister in Christ, someone who steps in to speak the truth in love, to halt a brother or sister from foolish behavior? I mean, think about that tonight. Is there someone you know who is barreling down a foolish road right now? Someone who is headed for disaster, and you know they are. First thing you need to do, is pray for them entrust them to prayer. Don't dive in and shoot off your mouth like a fool. Pray, ask the Lord to intervene, ask the Lord to do his work. And then as the Lord puts it on your heart, you may be the one to step in and then to rebuke a brother or sister of their sin and immediately rejoice in their forgiveness if they come to it. We have, by the way, the greatest roadblock to foolishness in all history. It was erected on Skull Hill. You wanna talk about a roadblock to the stupidity of humanity? It is the cross. It stops us dead in our tracks. It forces a a halt to our rushing down a stupid road. It makes us pause to consider something. What's that? The joy of our Father. Remember, Abigail's name means joy of my father. What is my father's greatest joy if not salvation? Hebrews 12, verse two, fixing our eyes on Jesus, author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before Jesus, I believe, is twofold, that he would be back with the father soon and that we would be with him that Jesus looked right through the pain and horror of the cross and saw you and saw me and even in our folly chose to die for us. So amazing to think about the fact. Please believe me tonight when I say your salvation brings the Father joy. It's wonderful. But when salvation is refused, God will still act. Verse 36. Then Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king, oh And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until morning light. But in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. Heart attack? Stroke, perhaps? The fool goes stone-cold, comatose. I mean, it's almost, it's almost cartoonish. She tells him what took place the day before and how she protected him of, of certain death, and he just goes <laughs> And a week and a half later, about 10 days later, verse 38, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. God is capable of stepping in and cutting off the fool. But his death here is not by the foolish sword of David, but the righteous wrath of God. And sometimes the foolish road I'm running down has another name, Judgment Street. And I'm in the place where I am putting that on somebody else. Listen, that's not my road. Judgment is not my road. I will speak the truth of God. I will declare the words of the wrath of God that will come on all those who reject him. But for me to judge another person is not the road that I'm called to walk. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, Romans 12, 19. That's God's business, not mine. And the way we walk that out, it's so important as Christians to understand. We don't walk it out in judgment and hate for a lost world. We walk it out in truth. We will declare what the Bible declares as true, even if what the Bible declares is offensive, we'll share that, but we don't share it from a place of judgment. You're such a sick sinner. Look at, let me just show you how bad you are. We share it from a place of love and compassion and grace if you continue down this road you will die the death of a fool. We are called to walk in compassion and love and grace and mercy. The kingdom of the Son of God could not be entrusted to David completely. It wasn't David's wrath that needed to be fulfilled here. And so what God does is he sends an Abigail, he sends a servant, he sends roadblocks, he stops David from this foolishness, and then guess what? God takes out Nabal. Why didn't he just let David do it? Because it would have been on David. By God doing it, it was an act of righteous wrath rather than an act of aggrieved anger. And there's a clear difference. God must intervene, detour, and even block our paths from time to time from our own reckless idiocy, and you know what? As much as the kingdom couldn't be completely entrusted to David, God had to intervene and take care of it here, same goes for us. The church cannot always be completely entrusted to us. What do you mean by that? I mean the kingdom. There are those who still teach and believe that the kingdom has been entrusted to the church to win the world and to hand it over to Jesus once we've accomplished our good work. That is bogus, that is not Bible. The kingdom has not been completely entrusted to us. We are men and women citizens of that kingdom, but we are not gonna bring about its perfect glory and then hand it to Jesus. He will bring it when he comes. Because we would mess it up. Look at the state of the church anyway. In the world today, and I I say this loving the church, but my point is very simply this. There has only ever been one who could fully be entrusted with bringing about the kingdom. Only one who is never a fool. Only one who thoroughly understood and understands that kingdom glory must come through the mean Nabals of the world. You got to endure this stuff to get to the kingdom because some of those mean Nabals actually might repent and be saved. You think you've been plagued by fools in your life? Consider Jesus. Don't take things into your own hand. Don't assume that you know right. Let Jesus take all things into his hands because when Jesus takes things into his hands, he sees the scars. Hebrews 12, three, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do what he did. And you won't be the Nabal in the story. God's gonna send roadblocks when we need them. I am so thankful for that. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach. Jake pointed this out to me today. I didn't even see it. Who has pleaded the cause of my reproach? Yeah, the Lord prayed for me, David says. God prayed for me. Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal. What does that mean? Remember that Jesus is forever interceding for the saints? Now, I don't think it's reading into it to say that it's entirely likely that as David is heading down, that the Lord Jesus, among the triune God, that Jesus pleaded his cause, and the Father sent the roadblock in the person of the servant, in the person of Abigail. Interesting to think. He pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant. So there it is again. He kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. God took care of all of it. I didn't have to. David is realizing all of this. And then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. Oh, David. Read on. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. She arose bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. I am so impressed. It's a good thing Abigail was 3,000 years ago. I am so impressed with this woman. Godly, spiritual, spiritual, David now wants to take her, his wife. Of course, this is Wild West times in Israel. They haven't fully recognized the one man for one woman. That's gonna be problematic all the way through the kings. Solomon's gonna have a big issue with it. David already has a wife, Saul's daughter Michal. He has another wife who, who, who will show up here in a moment. And he wants Abigail, but, but what's her answer? Well, I can't do that. Well, she doesn't really have a choice. This is a woman in that day and age in that time. So what does she do? I will be a servant. I will come to your house and be a servant and wash the feet of your servants. This is a beautiful, humble woman. And then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidservants who attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David had also taken Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both became his wives. Okay, he's not even king, and he's already violating the rule of the kings in Deuteronomy. And it's going to cost him. Verse 44 says, Now Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who is from Galim. This is just getting messier. Michal's going to show up later, and she's not going to be a real encourager of the house. But right now, Saul goes, Okay, David's not here to take care of you as his wife. He's on the run. You're going to marry this guy and sends her off. And, And what can Michal do? Now she's with another guy. And it just is gonna get messier and messier. I've said this before, the Bible is not supporting, the Bible is just reporting. It's not saying this is okay, it's just saying this is what took place. Jesus said, have you not read that he created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh, but therefore God has joined together. Let no man separate. Matthew 19, four through six. And if anyone wonders where Jesus stands on male, female, gender, all of this, and marriage, there it is. He just repeats the way it's been from the beginning, which long precedes David. So this isn't a question of, well, maybe it was okay then. No, it's never been okay. Well, I thought David was a spiritual man. He is and soulish and carnal with a lot to learn just like us. There's a foolishness in David here as yet unrealized that is going to end up causing great grief in his family and among his kids and stepkids and different wives and and that that mess is ahead of us in our studies. Psalm 119, 133 says this. Establish my footsteps in your words and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. Oh God, guard my steps. Jude, verse 20, you beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. David was kept, David was restrained. He was roadblocked from stepping into foolishness. Keep yourselves in the love of God waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And one final thing, Abigail is a beautiful picture of the wife of the king. And there's probably more application we could make than I'm gonna make right now, but Abigail, remember what she said to David? She said at the end of verse 31, when the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Remember your maidservant. What did the thief say to Jesus on the cross? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does the wife of the king say? What does the bride of Christ say? Oh, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. That's what the Abigail would say. The wife of a king, remember me. David does remember her, calls him to her, and she says, I will be a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. That's how the bride of Christ ought to be. Men and women who wash each other's feet. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this chapter that you've put before us. And I just pray, Lord, that you would go before us and keep us from foolishness. As David wrote in the Psalms, you know our folly. You know what we're capable of. You know the the foolish and the stupid and even the sinful things that we could wander into when the carnal man, the carnal woman begins to call. And so we pray, Lord, that as you continue to sanctify and develop our spirits, that you would detour us every time you see fit, everywhere you need to, to keep us from foolishness, that we might walk in the steps of Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.